welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? I'm confused. Oh my, okay. Let me see if I can help. Uh, well, yeah, maybe you can, because you've seen Black Panther, the newest uh, MCU movie. I have. Now, why is it that it seems like every time a new Marvel movie comes out, everyone behaves as if all the previous Marvel movies weren't good all of a sudden? It's crazy. Yeah. It seems like everyone seems to like the Marvel movies, but then they seem to hate the idea of a Marvel movie. And so everyone is the exception to some norm that doesn't exist. Doesn't it feel like that? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, and I feel like anytime, and, and I, it might not even just be Marvel. I feel like anytime there is a genre that is well-established, has made a lot of money and that everybody kind of knows what to expect anything that's even mildly new like black panther or wonder woman which is to say female directed african-american directed you know featuring characters who are not white guys um and i'm not going to say like it's like a social justice thing but it's like it's new it's different and sometimes that's enough for people. I mean, people were over the moon about guardians of the galaxy because that tone, Oh my gosh, it's so amazing. But this isn't specifically about black Panther. No, no, Black Panther is different, but it seems like every time they're like, Oh, this one, this one gets it right. But it's like, you said that about the last one. Yeah. And I don't understand. And and, cause I'm not like, I've only seen a handful of these movies, but I mm -hmm. like them. Yeah. I, I haven't seen a single Marvel movie that I out and out dislike. I think, Iron Man and Thor both have problems. Yes. Um, uh, but I generally seem to like, I don't love them, but I generally enjoy the Marvel movies. And some of them I love, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if people just are looking for something to believe in uh, right now. Um, but I think if something... I have to assume it has to do with something being slightly new or different as opposed to simply new but it does seem to because here's the thing they didn't say it about guardians 2 in fact i know a lot of people who said it they thought it was too goofy they liked the first one but since we're getting more of that in the second one they're not going to speak particularly well of it. Thor Ragnarok, however, right. is very different than the first two Thors. And so they're like, oh, well, it's obviously the best Thor movie. And it's like, well, that, maybe it's just because it's giving you something different than what was already established. And I enjoyed Thor Ragnarok, but I do think that at this point, something that is different might be enough for people to be, you know, that feeling of, Oh, this is refreshing might be enough for people to speak. And also people just speak really hyperbolically. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But it just seems like so many of these movies are different enough to garner some praise, but then people, it just seems like people forget what they said about the West, (laughs) about the 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 previous movies. And I I kind of understand because I feel like the, uh, I, I do understand that as a cultural force, Marvel seems like less than the sum of its parts. Do you know what I mean? Yes. In the certain terms of like the MCU and it tied in with Disney buying up everything, you know, seems like something we should be against and you can be against the MCU, but like all the movies. And I feel like people have trouble yeah. navigating that, uh, <laughs> that cognitive dissonance and it leads to some, 
what I find is some, some disingenuous reactions. It's like, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't see Black Panther. Okay. I, I really liked Guardians mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel the need to suddenly downgrade my opinion of Doctor Strange or Ant-Man because I liked Guardians 2. Yeah. And it feels like that's what people do. I mean, I myself fall victim to it every once in a while, but I feel like I can defend it a little bit. Like one of the things that I love about Doctor Strange is that it does take things that that are well established and it still does them, but it turns them on their head a little bit. Like, rather than a city falling down, it becomes dangerous because it's putting itself back together. That's a neat idea, yeah, I think. that was cool. And I so, I find that refreshing. It doesn't necessarily mean I'll declare it the best of all the movies, though. Um, and so, yeah, I think people... I'm not sure what it is, uh, that, that instinct. And you find it a lot with... Uh, I was talking in the movie journal and, uh, about like villains because people are very aware of the Marvel villain problem. Uh-huh. And so anytime you get like, like I saw people, do you see Civil War? No. Okay. Daniel Brule plays the villain like and he's, yeah, I do too. And uh, there's a, <clears throat> there's a, I believe a family of villains in the Marvel universe. Uh, called Baron Zemo like it's one guy and then I think it was his son and then I think his grandson and all that okay um and so Daniel Daniel Brule plays him but not really not really at all it's just the name Mm -hmm. and the nationality but he's a guy who you know through these various you know machinations like causes the Avengers to fight each other and so because of that, people said, like, is, you know, is Zemo, he still goes by Zemo, but not Baron. Um, it's like, is Zemo like the, is the best villain so far? And then I like, I read a couple, a couple articles mm-hmm. about that, uh, in which they said, like, I mean, think about like all this stuff that he did. He did, you know, he, he had him do this and had him do that. And I was like, yeah, I, what? I guess so. I mean, Daniel Brule is fine and everything, but like when I think of a villain, I don't necessarily think purely of like the stuff they do. I also think of how dynamic is their personality and do they have an interesting look to them and all that sort of thing. And he's none of that. Uh, he's just a guy that does this stuff and that's kind of a neat variation of things. But I don't know. I think people are just constantly looking for, I don't know what I think it's that people want the cred of, dismissing this majorly popular thing, sure. but then also want to like the movies that they like at the same time that, you know what? It could be that it's, you know, what's the, I don't, I can't remember the line from uh, high fidelity where Jack black, they're taking, they're making a top five and then John Cusack says his and, and, uh, and Jack black says like, he goes, huh, four well-established albums and one new one. Yeah. One unexpected new one. How very pussy. <laughs> and just like, because it, it does seem yeah. a little bit, are they doing like, like I want to get side one track one and he puts, uh, blue yeah. lines by massive attack. I think is his newer one. Yeah. You would, you would know, you would know, I like that album yeah. a lot. Yeah. I like massive attack. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it could be that it could be like, I don't mean to say like uh, they're hedging their bets or anything like that, or they're trying to, they're not, I don't think it's affected, but I do think there's this element of like not holding what is in the past in too high of esteem and saying like, no, this new thing, this is great. And it's not about like new automatically being good so much as look, I can have perspective. I don't, 
just because something is older or something, you know, paved the way, that doesn't mean I have to say that's the best one. Um, I don't know. It's listeners feel free to weigh in because I feel like we're, I feel like we're on the verge of, of uh-huh. cracking this code, but not quite there yet. Yeah. Well, um, while they mull it over, uh, let's also give them something else to think about. Yeah. I don't want them tuning out. No, no, during no. This, you know, uh, mentally. This is this is even more food for thought. That's right. Yeah, really, real think piece here. Let's face it. All right, all right. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have thirty days to watch it. That means there's always thirty wonderful films to enjoy, all for only eight ninety-nine a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Okay, so uh, you know that David and I are not big fans of Martin McDonough's uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, but uh, his first film, uh, a short film called Six Shooter, uh, starring Brendan Gleeson, I am a big fan of. I think it's, uh, it's everything that, that Martin McDonough can be. Um, it's funny. It's kind of morose. It features great performances. Uh, in many ways, it is a, a nice precursor to In Bruges, which I am a big fan of. But anyway, uh, so you can actually see Six Shooter at Mubi right now uh, and lament what three billboards could have been. But anyway, uh, there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Today, I was listening to the uh, debut album by Houston rapper Max O'Cream, which I mentioned briefly on the Movie Journal a few days ago, or you know, twenty-five minutes ago uh, in real time. Um, there are the, these earbuds are available uh, and wristwatches. We never talk about that, but they have wristwatches as well. True. The earbuds are available at tweakedaudio.com for a low, low price. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code a pretension. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. So we are continuing our uh, 2017 wrap up, which we do for a few weeks uh, every February. Um, This time we're our like as I mentioned last week, our schedule was a little thrown off because we're fitting a profile in next week and then we'll get back to our top 10. But this is another episode. It's weird. We used to just do a top 10. I know. And you came up with two of these two episodes. You came up with the one we did last week. Oh, yeah. And you came up with this one. Um, this is and the beepies. Uh, yeah, I love this shit. I guess apparently, yeah. <laughs> um, I like to re- but, take time to reflect. So, so next week we'll talk about our top ten movies of the year. We will also mention, but not go into detail on uh, some honorable mentions mm-hmm. and um, underrated, overrated, and, and worst. Those yes. are the things we go through, um, but in reverse order of what I just said on the top ten episode. But that doesn't encompass the whole year. There are movies that we liked this year that we felt didn't get enough attention. Yes. Happens every year. Um, and that's what the through the cracks episode is this year. It was, um, 
The, there weren't as many to pick from. I feel like this I is the first I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. I, I, our, uh, off mic, our friend Scott, uh, Scott and I, our uh, editor-at-large, um, mentioned that he didn't think 2017 was a very strong year. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I didn't necessarily agree with him at the time, but this is the first time I felt that. Like, going through and trying to find five things, I was like, I guess I'll talk about this. But, in the end, but then, of course, there's. I ended up finding seven, but had to narrow it down to five. So uh, I had know. to struggle to get five, honestly. Yeah, I, yeah. There, I, I just, there, there weren't, there, there's a couple of these, but there weren't as many that I'm, like, passionate about. Uh, there's a couple on here I really am passionate about. But, yeah, the, uh, the stuff that I feel strongly about is in my top 15. Right, yeah. Or it's something that did not fall through the cracks. Everybody knows about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, like, the lesser known stuff is some of my least favorite stuff of the year. So it's, uh, but right there in the middle is kind of this odd selection of things. And one yeah. of these is actually very well known. I just didn't think it get enough, got enough credit critically. Um, okay. So, uh, why don't, you know what? That's a great way to start. All right. Uh, we will kick things off with a discussion of Kong Skull Island, which I didn't see. It made plenty of money. It did okay. Uh, on that front, people were very aware of it. You know, it did hardly fell through the cracks. Um, and you know, it did a little post credit tip of the hat to uh, a larger universe in which Godzilla is there and that kind of thing. So, okay. Not a small film Mm -hmm. by, by any stretch. But I really think uh, it's doing some great stuff. Um, Visually, I think, uh, you know, people have said that there are some obvious Apocalypse Now references, and I think that's true. But I also think it draws more than simple references from Apocalypse Now. I think its use of color is very reminiscent of uh, Apocalypse Now. I mean, it has, like, these very harsh, like, reds and greens and that sort of thing. I think it has a number of really strong performances, maybe most notably John C. Riley, who manages to be both the comic relief and the heart of the film, which is uh, rare. Yeah. Um, uh, Samuel Jackson is very engaged uh, in the character that he's playing, and uh, he plays a very specific type of bad guy. Uh, but also, I think it just it has some really strong stuff to say about war, and the way war can like warp our, our views of heroism. Um, and the idea of being committed to an idea Mm -hmm. and that there's nothing wrong with being committed to an idea, but like some, when you start to define yourself by that idea, then you will fight to the death for that idea, whether or not maybe it's, completely true at this particular moment. And if you've seen the film, it will make a lot more sense to you, but, uh, it really does some, some powerful stuff. There are moments, you know, it subverts, certainly it subverts, you know, action movie cliches, but it also subverts war movie cliches. There, there's a scene where a character very nobly tries to sacrifice himself and is, not he's not allowed to it's not that he's unable to he's not allowed to like the thing that he is trying to bring down swats him aside and he still dies Mm. like there's nothing noble in his death he Mm -hmm. tried to make it noble because that's you know it's this kind of heroism it's not a misplaced heroism there is a nobility to it but war doesn't give a shit if you're noble or not and i feel like there's just some really interesting and and the scene where Kong first starts attacking the military, there are some very jarring images in there where like 
there is a scene where a helicopter's crashed and one soldier is, you know, holding another one and mm-hmm. like carrying them along and then Kong smashes both of them. Like we have an image in our head of like, again, nobility of like, Hey, there's a wounded soldier and he's my brother and I'm going to carry him to safety. And Kong doesn't give a shit. And there's some, what you're making me want to watch the movie. It's, it's really good. I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's not amazing. And there are some pretty, there's some cliches things in there as well, but boy, did I not expect it to have this much in it. Wow. All right. Um, uh, I'm going to have trouble mustering that much passion uh, for anything here. But uh, the first one I want to mention, I, 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 it seems like even in the 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 film community that would have normally embraced this type of this, something in this director, it felt like uh, Aki Karasmaki's The Other Side of Hope just came and went. Okay. Um, it, was, it was probably my favorite thing that I saw at AFI Fest as far as new movies uh, go, because uh, I also saw some older movies there. Um, and I think part of the reason I maybe responded to it so much is because his last film that did get a lot more attention, Le, Le Havre, Le Havre, I don't know, I oh, yeah, say another it, one. Yeah. Um, didn't work as well for me. I felt that it was... Uh, I mean, sentimentality is a part of his work, but uh, I felt that Le, Le Havre was overly sentimental and maybe part of that is because um there's a child at the center of the movie mm-hmm. whereas the other set of hope is also a movie that deals with Im- immigration and refugees um just like Leav was um but it's you know an an adult mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and it also i think um you know i don't know if um I don't know if in Finland they talk about the Finnish dream the way that we talk about the American dream. I feel like that idea of if they do, um, I want to know what they mean. <laughs> but but I, I see a bit of American dream type of story in the other side of hope because it's not just about this Syrian refugee. Mm-hmm. It's also about a salesman who uh, leaves his wife and buys a restaurant, and it's about both of them at the same time. And eventually, the Syrian ends up working as a uh, working in the restaurant. Hmm. Um, but it's a, this is a dual narrative that for a while goes by, you know, back and forth without it, you know, finally coming together. I do like that kind of uh, stuff. Yeah. And, um, so I think I, I just felt like his, the, again, the sentimentality was, I think rooted in something that was more universal. Um, this sort of wanting to make something of yourself, by yourself type of thing that I think is true to a, a lot of people. Um, and it, I guess maybe, maybe I just have a, uh, tougher time with movies about kids, but I love the Florida project. Sure. Um, uh, uh, but it's all, it's also very, very funny. Um, and it very, it uses his sort of, uh, stagey presentation, uh, very well to make for what I think are some uh, incredibly funny moments. But I, that was one of the other, comp- one of the main complaints I, uh, or criticism that I read about it is that the comedy was too broad. But I think that's, I mean, that's kind of what he does. There's kind of a throwbackness hmm. to, to, to his, to his thing. And so the idea of, um, you know, there's a purely comedic scene that's, the, this this uh, this restaurant isn't working, and so they decide to rebrand themselves as a sushi restaurant. But they're like, 
a bunch of Finns who have no idea what sushi is. <laughs> and so there's just an extended part, extended like sequence of them making sushi, but they're just like, like just scooping huge things of wasabi <laughs> onto the plate. Like it's, uh, that's, I, I, I that's a little broad, but that's uh, all right. Yeah. But I, I, I like it. I think Are there any much, montages where somebody tries on different clothes. Uh, I don't remember that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but I just, I feel like that, that broadness really fits with his, the, his theatrical, Aki Karazumaki's theatrical style. And I think, um, the, the trick he pulled off of, of, of being broadly comic and also, um, really specific and, uh, human and heartfelt, um, and insightful mm-hmm. about these, these two very different men, uh, I think is worth more attention than the movie got. All right, next up for me. Okay, so one thing about this episode is that not all of these movies are great. You know? Yeah. Uh, a good number of the films I'm going to talk about today uh, have major flaws. But if you're a film fan, I think they're worth seeking out. Um, maybe because of one element or several elements. Um, but uh, one film I wanted to talk about is a horror comedy directed by Alice Lowe called Prevenge. Oh, right. Uh, which I didn't necessarily love. Um, Alice Lowe is, is in it. And it is about this uh, woman who is pregnant and she is a widow. And the little baby inside her seems to be whispering to her, uh, making it to like urge her on to, uh, uh, kill people. And so the way in which she does, it's different for every person. Um, and what's particularly interesting is that there does have, there, there is this element you talked about in talking about uh, tragedy girls, you mentioned mm-hmm. this, I- this idea of like, we want to believe that if somebody is murdered, that they deserve it in some way. And so to see her, like she doesn't want to really do this, but this voice is kind of urging her to do it. And so like when she meets the person that she is going to hurt, there's a clear, like, okay, uh, is this person good or bad? Like really trying to focus on whatever negative thing is there so that she can be kind of okay with this. But then what's interesting is that you discover that the, the victims are not random, that they all share something in common, but you have no idea what it could be. They couldn't be more f- different than mm-hmm. each other. Um, so there's kind of a mystery element to it. I think it is uh, darkly comic, maybe a bit broad at times. Uh, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily scary so much as it, as it is uh, disturbing at times. Uh, but the lead performance is solid. I think Alice Lowe, um, who I believe was actually pregnant when she, uh, made the film. And I think that's probably yeah. worth noting that, uh, and it's her, the revenant ex- <laughs> in, in that, that came up in every story. Yeah. Of, yeah. And so I do think that, uh, and I've, I've, I've not been pregnant myself, but, uh, I feel like if, uh, if, if you, the listener, if you have been or you are, I feel like the film might speak to you in a very specific way. Like I, I have known pregnant people who often say like the baby wants uh, <laughs> peanut butter on pizza. So that's what the baby's going to get. It's like, what if the baby wants you to kill someone? <laughs> it's like, hey, whatever gets it to stop kicking, you know. Um, so I think there's an element there. Um, 
And, uh, and there's also a fair amount of sadness to the character. So there's a lot of elements to it. I don't think they always work completely well. And I do think that sometimes, uh, the comedy, uh, cause Alice Lowe does come primarily from comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it sometimes undercuts some of the other things, but I think there's enough, there's definitely enough there to recommend the film, especially to horror fans. All right. Um, it's a coincidence or maybe subconsciously it wasn't that I mentioned the Revenant because my next movie, uh, is Alex and Andrew Smith's walking out, which is, um, uh, similar to the Revenant in a lot of ways, except for that. It's very good. Um, uh, well, I've been a fan of the Smith brothers since the slaughter rule, which Mm -hmm. uh, you are also a fan of. Um, they have made three feature films. Okay. I have been at the world premiere of two of them. Wow. I was too young for Slaughter Rule, but Fire, uh, what's it called? Uh, Winter in the Blood um, premiered at the LA Film Fest in 2013, I think, and Walking Out premiered at Sundance last year. Um, uh, so I'm, uh, I, I feel like a real connection to these guys. Yeah. And there's something about the movies they make that really, really works for me in that they are... Um, they tend to be movies about men. Um, and even more than that, they tend to be movies about rural, rugged men. And yet, and, and guys that you, you know, would maybe describe as like, you know, macho or whatever, mm-hmm. but the, the, there's such a, there's such a poetry to the way that they, um, the, the way, the way that they, uh, approach these men and the, and the idea that they can be, emotional and complex and sensitive and vulnerable and still be every bit men. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, the premise of walking out is uh, Matt Bomer's star takes place, um, as all Slaughter, uh, all, all Smith brothers movies do in Montana. Um, and Matt Bomer plays a, a divorced dad who lives in rural Montana. And um, his son, who now lives with his mother in Texas, is coming for something that happens every year uh, where they, he comes, spends a week, and they go on a hunting trip. Um, and uh, Matt Bomer's like, so the kids, uh, like, uh, I don't know, he's supposed to be like 15 or 16. And Matt Bomer's like, I've been tracking this this moose, this is going to be, you're going to get a bit, you know, we're going to try and get a big, some big game this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wander up, um, the mountainside and, um, uh, in the snow and, uh, something unfortunate happens. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in which one of them is very badly injured and then they have to walk out. Um, and so it's, it's a survival story. Um, but it's also a story about, you know, fathers and sons and uh what we can teach to or learn from one another it's also moved it's very much about hunting mm-hmm. um uh, and has a very uh, i think um i would say a very respectable set of ideals uh about the difference between hunting and killing mm-hmm. um a lot of that comes up in um as i mentioned matt bomer but uh uh um, Bill Pullman is also in the movie oh, okay. in, uh, in flashbacks. Uh, he plays Matt Bomer's dad when he was a kid, when he would go hunting with his dad. So you see the, you know, young Matt Bomer and Bill Pullman. Um, it's not actually Matt Bomer. It's this, they didn't do a like Marvel type of, uh, de-aging. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the Smith brothers had that in the, in the budget from the Montana film fund or whatever. <laughs> um, 
Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's a very, uh, tense and intense nature movie. Um, beautiful, beautiful photography. I mean, obviously just Montana itself does a lot of the legwork there uh, in terms of it looking great. Um, uh, and, but without ever being as, uh, you know, showy or as Sturm and Drang as the Revenant, Mm -hmm. um, which I keep comparing it to because I really, I guess I still have a, uh, 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 <laughs> I still have a, 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 a burr in my saddle about how much I didn't like the Revenant. Uh, I wanted to address that actually, okay, uh, and because I feel like we're actually burning through these pretty fast, so let's uh, let's slow things down. Okay, uh, I also want to real quick. Okay. Um, the only thing that did bum me out a little bit about Walking Dead in comparison to um, the Smith Brothers, uh, Smith Brothers uh, other work is that there are other two films. Um, have very complex and strong and very present Native American characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this movie has a Native American character um, played by Lily Gladstone, by the way, from mm-hmm. Certain Women. Um, but it's not, it, she, you know, I, I mean, she's important to the plot eventually, but it's not, uh, it did seem like kind of like, uh, I guess, uh, I, I, I guess in this age of like representation, I guess I felt. Yeah. Uh, that it was a bummer that this is a movie about very much, you know, white American men, yeah. you know, whereas, uh, you saw the slaughter rule, I do. right? So yes. Ryan Gosling is pretty famous. Ryan Gosling, yeah. his best friend, uh, is a native American. They play, um, whatever that, that bastard form of football they play in the movie, ever right. it's called, they play it on the, on the res. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, uh, winner in the blood is in almost entirely, except for David Morris. It's almost entirely about native American characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so what were you going to say about the Revenant? You're going to defend it, sort of. Um, so, this is something that I heard about Birdman and then the Revenant, like just this little one-two punch. And like, while, yeah, didn't like Birdman either. And while I recognize that, like, because he won Best Director two years in a row, that and then Birdman won Picture, I think that does make it makes people look at the films a little bit closer. Um, and I remember, uh, and Birdman resonated with me a lot. Uh, I don't think it's a necessarily a perfect film. I think there's some really great performances in there and all that. Anyway, uh, but I read some reviews that like that were dismissive of Birdman and then like dismissive of The Revenant. And I found myself thinking that like, look, Revenant w- was really nowhere near my top ten that year, and Birdman was in my top ten, but it wasn't my number one, and it was in my top ten for I would say personal reasons. Um, but at the same time, like I don't think they're films that can be dismissed, like out of hand. Like they are very ambitious, and I feel like movies, and I think they, for the most part, realize that ambition. The, thematically and narratively, they might be, might not be that, that complex, but at the same time, like for, for people that are always bemoaning like CGI and talking about like, oh, I want more practical effects. Like, look, I recognize you couldn't have an actual bear kill Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't <laughs> think, I think it'd be difficult to ensure. Uh, but you know, that is, he does try to do things as practically as possible and within that tries to do pretty amazing things. And so while I understand people's objections, 
I don't understand people, not to imply this is you, uh, I don't understand people's dismissal of the films because I feel like they can't be dismissed. Uh, I definitely see what you're saying. I, I know on its on their own, especially The Revenant, there's some... Um, did Emmanuel Lubezki shoot both of them? Yes. Yeah, there's some really beautiful stuff. That shot, when he looks behind him and you pan across the mountain as there's an avalanche coming down the mountain yeah. and off, and it's so beautiful. Um, but I, I just feel like, in, with both movies, I feel like I can almost hear... Um, um, in your to uh, like just off screen shouting, look, 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 look yeah. at me. Oh, they're, they're self-conscious. There's no question I, about it. Yeah. And so I feel like I appreciate, I do appreciate the, the undertaking and the ambition, but I can only re- really appreciate it, uh, academically or intellectually at a remove because the movies themselves are putting up a wall to me. They're not, they're not immersive to me. Which is I'm, weird because I think they're. I do think they are trying very hard to be immersive. But I'm, I'm, I'm way too aware of the camera, uh, you know, uh, uh, all the all the time. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Terrence Malick, which is also Emilio Lubezki, yeah, um, does a lot of that as as well. Um, but I, it, it just it just seems to it, it's just too. It's too into itself. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, and that, that was definitely an issue that I had when he made like Babel. I think he's a guy who is like, got locked into a, you know, freshman year philosophy mindset uh-huh. and just ran with it. Um, but I do appreciate like filmmaking with a capital F, you know, like <laughs> it might not always work, but I don't know. It's like, I'm not saying The Revenant is as good as any David Lean film, but I feel like it's a similar inst- it comes from a similar instinct, which is like I want to try and do something here uh and expose viewers to something that they're not in a position to see very often and I want to try and capture it as much as I can. Um again, that's I didn't love The Revenant. I really didn't. Yeah. Um I mean David Lean was I think definitely more psychologically interested in his characters. I feel like yeah, it's I it actually puts on a show of being about psychology, but everything's up on the surface, I think. Yeah, it's I think except I mean, I liked I remember liking Amoris Peros and thing that was pretty solid. And I like 21 grams, but I know a lot of people don't. I remember liking both of them. I've seen them both exactly once. So um, maybe I'll I'll revisit. Um, yeah. Uh, it's I think, weird. I think, Amoris Peros was a, uh, nominated for best foreign language film. Was I it? I think it was. I think it was because I think my sister and I went and saw it on Oscar Sunday. Like we went that afternoon. Mm. We were like, this is supposed to be good and it might win or whatever. Yeah. And I saw it. Yeah. At the, it is very at, good. At I, saw, I saw it only. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw it only for the first time a few years ago. Um, and it's interesting now that I think about it. Um, one of the things that made me kind of roll my eyes about Babel is that it did that nonlinear editing thing. And I don't think it needed to. Um, and so I never saw Babel. Uh, it has its moments, but what's interesting is that I feel like in your E2 is like, okay, I want to be really experimental with my editing. And it's like, all right, that's done. Let's move on to cinematography. I want to be really kind of experimental and, and high ambition in my cinematography. But in every instance, I think it, I think it can be argued that he's much more interested in what he is trying to do than actually doing it. Um, 
but yeah, so, but at the same, but either way, like even, even as you said, like academically, like people that I go to school with, like dismiss the films and it's like, but even just on an achieve on a technical achievement level, it still does. Maybe we should just be talking about Emmanuel Lebeski. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But see, you can Best do cinematographer both, three, three years in a row. That's yeah. crazy. You can do both. Yes, absolutely. Look at Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. That's incredibly ambitious yeah. and also a really, really good movie. It is. Yeah. It's a and better it's, movie the more I think about it. It's, it really grows in my mind. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, we should move on, but it's, it's right, something yeah. that, uh, it, I never thought I would be in the, in the position of defending in Cause I don't think he ever really hit me the right way, except certain thematic stuff with Birdman. But, uh, but here we are. I just like to be a contrarian. Who doesn't? Fair enough. Um, oddly enough, uh, Armand White. See, now I'm being a contrarian about people's <laughs> view of him. Okay, uh, is it me next? Yeah, I think you're next. Okay. Uh, so there's a documentary ca- by Sally Sussman Morina called Midnight Return, the story of Billy Hayes and Turkey. Um, oh. It is a very good documentary, uh, and it is uh, about Billy Hayes, whose story was popularized and actually made very famous by the book and then movie midnight uh is midnight express not midnight run that's a very different thing um yeah that's a good movie it is i mean midnight express is a good movie too it is uh unless you live in turkey uh in which case you watch midnight express and think like hey we're not actually like that Hmm. and it like it the film had like a a really big impact on Turkey's standing in, in the world. Um, and even, and even though like, you know, when people say like, Oh, Turkish prison, it's because of midnight express that they say Mm -hmm. that now it was not a good prison. Like it's, it, it, there are moments in the documentary when he goes back into the building that is no longer a prison. And he like walks into like a basement area and he just like, and you see, and this is a guy who, by the way, has been performing for a while. Like he's always aware when there's a camera mm-hmm. around and in that moment it falls and mm-hmm. you just see like, Oh, okay. He's definitely flashing back something. So it was not a, it's not like it was a, a great experience or anything like that. But, uh, in some cases he might've over-exaggerated. And then like some of the biggest moments in the movie were written by Oliver Stone, who's uh-huh. not opposed to heightening things. Um, and so it, it's a film very much about, you know, the the impact that art can have on the world and the fact that, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, when people talk about how the story of the social network is not how it actually happened, I think like, yeah, but it makes for a good movie. You know, it it doesn't really bother me that much, but yeah. it's, I think that's callous of me and it's easy to get academic about these kind of things and realize like these do have real world consequences, um, and it can ruin people's life. And like one thing that, uh, uh somebody that was interviewed, I, I don't, he's some kind of, uh, official in Turkey. And he said like, what you don't find out cause Billy Hayes was, uh, arrested like, uh, because he was smuggling drugs out of the country, mm-hmm. but it was like a small amount. It turns out it wasn't actually that small amount. It was a big enough amount to be, con- to be easily considered distribution. Um, and so, or trafficking, pardon me. Uh, but on top of everything, there was a lot of, there was a lot of pressure in the U S um, to like come down hard on drugs. So at the, so Nixon at the time, 
and they knew that there was a lot of stuff coming out of Turkey. So he reached out to Turkey, uh, the, the leaders of Turkey, I don't know if it's a president or whatever. Um, and basically said like, Hey, we need you to like come down hard. Even if, if they're American citizens, like there's a lot of pressure. So like, this is a thing you and I can do together. And then this happened. And so like, there's all this stuff going on that the movie doesn't touch on. It just says, look at these horrible Turks uh-huh. and that sort of thing. So, and I think it's just, a, I think it's just a well-made documentary. I think it's very thorough, which I like a lot. Um, because in some instances it talks very much about this political thing, but in other instances, you know, one of the, one of the popular scenes, uh, that was then parodied or referenced at least in, uh, uh the cable guy is that, uh, Billy's girlfriend comes to visit oh, right. and presses her uh-huh. breasts up against the glass. Well, then it interviews his girlfriend at the time. And she's like, I didn't do that. <laughs> you know? So there's, there's, there's some, there's some, oh, that poor woman. Yeah. There's she's been some, asked that her entire life. Oh, no question. It reminds me of when in high school, I realized someone like, uh, I lived in the six, three, six area code. And I realized that there was a number in my area code that was eight, six, seven, five, three Oh nine. And I called it oh, <laughs> and a woman answered and I said, is Jenny there? And she said, get a life and hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were so very clever and original. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a really effective movie in a lot of ways. Um, I think it probably, I think it probably is, is best to have seen midnight express before you see the film. Um, but, uh, but I think even if you don't, I think it gives you a pretty good sense of, of the time and, and what happened with Billy Hayes afterwards and, and his desire to actually try to undo a lot of the damage that he did, uh, or that the stuff around him that his story did. So it's a, it's a good documentary and it got like no play at all. It got, you know, limited theatrical run. And I don't even know, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's available like streaming right now, but seek it out. Midnight return. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Um, Next up is another uh, film that I saw at Sundance. I'm actually realizing, I didn't do this on purpose, but three of the five films we're going to be talking about today are movies I saw last year at Sundance. Um, And this is Kate Shortland's Berlin Syndrome, which um, I guess I'll describe as a thriller, but really I feel like it's a horror movie, except it doesn't have any... it, It doesn't feel specifically part of the genre, but... I feel like it's more honest to call it a horror movie than a thriller. Mm. Um, so Teresa Palmer plays a, um, uh, an Australian, uh, not a stretch for her because she is Australian, uh, who is, um, backpacking through Europe on, on her own and is in Berlin. And she meets, a, a German man played by Max, uh, Remelt, um, whom I guess Americans know from sense eight. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I did. I only watched the first episode of sense eight. Um, but anyway, um, and they sort of have a little fling. She stays in his apartment and she, uh, which is in a, um, his, his apartment is the only apartment in this building that is occupied there. Are, uh, and that's part of the movie is that there are part of the reason she's come to Berlin is to take photos of old, um, uh, Deutsche Democratic Republic based, you know, East German, mm. uh, buildings in, in Berlin. um, and, um, so part of the movie is about how 
in terms of it being a horror movie, it's sort of the city itself is kind of haunted by its past. And there are huge parts of the city that are kind of empty, mm-hmm. um, which I, I guess is apparently true. I don't know. Um, uh, so she wakes up in this apartment building. He's gone off to work and she realizes she's locked in. Um, and then that just becomes a reality for the entire movie mm-hmm. as he keeps her, I guess. Um, and uh, I, I, I think, you know, there's, I'm going to quote you, you and I, one of our favorite professors uh, at Columbia was Ron, Ron Falzone. Mm-hmm. And something he said that I've quoted on the podcast before that is one of the defining things about how I think about movies is he would always say, uh, often say, there's nothing you can say in cinema that you can't say in genre cinema. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is an effective horror thriller that has plenty of, you know, the kind of uh, pulpy but smart and well-executed beats that you'd expect with the escape attempts and, you know, stuff like that. But it's also a movie that is about so much more in terms of uh, it's about Berlin dealing with or not dealing with its own history. Um, it's about the way that um, a, uh, a a man can take out his uh, frustrations, not on a woman, but on women in general, mm-hmm. that men can, you know, sort of... Uh, just you know you you see that a lot with like the um men's rights people these days and the idea of just like all women represent this problem and all you know my problems aren't my own it's because women are all this way you know and so you see that kind of thing uh play out um but it's really you know it's a really edge of your seat thriller uh and um uh uh, I, I was surprised. I, I was kind of surprised that it came and went, but then again, I think it was on Netflix, which is what happens when Netflix yeah. uh, picks up movies. They disappear. Yeah. <laughs> somehow, yeah, somehow it comes and goes even while still being on Netflix. It's almost like they just forget yeah. what's it called again. Uh, Berlin syndrome, Berlin syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Next up for me. And again, like this is a film that people were aware of. This is not going to surprise anybody. Because they knew of it, they just didn't see it. Uh, and this is Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, directed by Luc Besson. Deeply flawed film, certainly on a script level, and I would venture to also say on a casting level. Um, as much oh. as I like Dane DeHaan, I think he needs he needs to be cast very specifically. Um, and as the le- as the hero of a sci-fi adventure, that's not it. Um, I feel like I like uh, Cara Delevingne, but now I can't even think of what I saw her in. Yeah, I feel like I've seen her before. I think she does a fine job. The two are the two are meant to have like romantic chemistry, which they don't. Um, yeah, I've never seen her. In, oh, I guess she had a role in Anna Karenina. I don't know why I think I like oh. Cara Delevingne. I don't know. Maybe you just like the name. Uh, I do like the name. <laughs> oh, she was in uh, Suicide Squad, which I didn't see. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes, I have. Se- yeah, I've seen her, and uh, she's not well utilized in Suicide Squad, but. Um, so, yeah, Valerian, it's everything that you expect from a Luc Besson sci-fi movie. I mean, it's it's over the top. It's ridiculous. Um, there are times when I'm like, wow, this dialogue hurts. This dialogue is... <laughs> hurt. It's it's committing an aggression, a, a microaggression against me, except it's not even that micro. Um, and so, you know, if you get past that, 
and the film is probably a bit too long as well. But when it's working, I mean, when uh, to me, it's like a big argument in favor of CGI, you know, speaking what I, as I was about the, the Revenant and that sort of thing, people always saying that like, no, 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 practical is better. It's like, that's just because you're saying that because we got used to CGI and people are maybe a bit too over dependent on it. But if you have someone who knows how to do it and knows how to, how to, how to do it with joy as Luke Passan does, um, I think it really comes through and there are sequences that could not be realized any other way and they feel creative and fresh and just full of life, vim, vigor, and vitality, uh, as they say on Quiz Show, um, Geritol. Anyway, uh, and it's just, uh, and there are, there are several specific set pieces that are just wonderful. I mean, it's, it's very episodic, which uh, mm-hmm. I guess is understandable, but, um, but yeah, it's, it is not an amazing movie. Please don't think I'm saying that, but there are amazing things in it and things that I was to the point that when I saw it, I was like, I'm, I saw it at like that $2 theater by my old place. And I, and I remember thinking like, I'm billing him. I'm bill. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, I'm glad I didn't wait until this Uh was completely out of the theater. Like not that this is the best theater in the world, but it is something that I'm happy I saw on the big screen, but I think it'd probably be pretty uh, fun on Blu-ray as well. So you know, lower certain standards, but you know, and then just enjoy it. I think I keep forgetting about that cheap theater now that I have movie pass, but I should. Yeah. Yeah. Cause some stuff just goes away and it's like, I'll spend $2. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give your warning here on my, on my next one too. And this movie's not perfect. Um, but it's, uh, just interesting offbeat enough um, that I definitely think it's worth uh, checking out. It's a Thai film called Popeye. Okay. Which is, um, it's a movie about a man who grew up in rural Thailand, uh, very poor, um, but he, uh, his family, but really he had a, an elephant as a pet. They lived, you know, uh, on, a, on a farm and they had an elephant and he was very close with this elephant. Now, present day, he's moved to the city. He's become a um, fairly successful architect. He lives in a nice, you know, uh, upper middle class part of town. But he's miserable at work because his um, boss's son is now his boss. Mm-hmm. So this person who's 20 years younger than him is now the boss and doesn't respect its history. His relationship with his wife is falling apart. And one day he's wandering around the streets and he sees sees his elephant elephants live a long time so uh he's like oh my god this is the elephant and so he decides well first he tries to bring the elephant home which leads to some um you know shenanigans yeah um would you say hilarity ensues hilarity does ensue yeah um and so then he decides i'm gonna take this elephant back i'm gonna go back you know the only my uncle's the only person in my family left alive there but you know assuming he still has the farm or whatever i'm gonna take this elephant back and so he walks across thailand with an elephant um and really it's in so many of the beats it's and this is something that left me a little bit disappointed is that the movie is actually a pretty conventional sort of midlife crisis movie 
or it can you know it, it's a conventional boy and his dog movie but it's both at the same time and instead of a dog it's an elephant yeah. and it's a grown man walking across thailand like it's it's offbeat enough um to 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 sort of act as a balance to how conventional the story actually is mm-hmm. um but uh, and also it's like you know i mean when I saw this sentence, I don't think it had an MPAA rating yet, but it's definitely an R-rated movie, hmm. which it sounds like a family movie in a yeah. way, you know, like larger than life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but this is definitely R-rated. Uh, and it has a, a lot of, just, it, it's uh, much like you said about Valerian, it's a very episodic movie in that, because it's just... Yeah, it's a road movie. It's a road so, movie, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of beautiful uh, moments and some scary moments and some touching heartfelt moments. And you got to love a big, adorable elephant. Yeah. You know, uh, the guy, I know I told the story back, I think on on our Sundance wrap up episode about the guy next to me at the screening Hmm. who, you know, normally I don't like people talking during movies very much, but the only thing this guy was saying was, how cute the elephant like every time the elephant would do something cute he'd be like oh um and this guy was older than i am um and then the part the the best so there's a part where the elephant gets loose and the local police are gonna shoot it because they don't know you know mm-hmm. they think it's gonna stampede it's gonna trample somebody yeah. and so the cops are like aiming at the elephant and the guy next to me is like fucking assholes <laughs> <laughs> um Anyway, the elephant ends up being okay. Don't okay, worry. good. Uh, yeah, so that's Popeye. It's apparently it's on. If you have Prime, you can watch it for free right mm. now. So uh, definitely worth checking out. But don't expect something that's you know Gonzo out there bizarre. It's actually a pretty by the numbers movie, just yeah. with some different elements added in uh, and some uh, beautiful looks at the uh, Thai countryside. Yeah, I'm sure. I remember. Uh on fishing with John, I remember in the in his commentary, he said that Thailand is one of those places that you can point the camera in any direction and get an amazing shot. Hmm, yeah. Um, okay, so my last one, correct? Yeah, I've done four. Okay, so my last one. Um, I guess I am a sucker for Dane DeHaan and <laughs> overly long movies uh, because my last one, and I wanted to save it for last because it's a movie that I think I actually kind of love despite it having major flaws, is Gore Verbinski's A Cure for Wellness. Um, super long, needlessly convoluted, and then when it finally does reveal what's going on, you're like, yeah, all right, fine, whatever. But uh, as a guy who really likes Korovinsky's Pirates movies, this sounds yeah. great to me. But that's the thing is, uh, uh, the type of filmmaker he is, like when he he's steering right into weirdness, um, and just this. I said it last week uh, when I mentioned um, Benjamin Walfish's score mm-hmm. that the film it feels very much like a Hammer film. Uh, it certainly engages in a lot of that iconography, uh, where, but it's just because it essentially takes place in a castle, so you get all that delightful type of art direction. But within that, it also, um, it's also like this sanitarium slash health club slash all of these things. Um, so you get these very old timey, almost like world war one uh type of like instruments and beds and outfits and 
it just, it, it's a place that exists so far just out of time. Um, it, in some ways it feels like those, like a, a much more demented, like universal horror film from the thirties. Like, you know, when you look at, at like the Wolfman, you real and you see, you know, I, what's it, Maria, Oh, I forget her name. She plays the old gypsy woman. And, you know, so, you know, Lawrence Talbot goes to like visit his father in the countryside in this big castle. And he's talking with like these gypsies and all that. And he like drives up in a car and you're like, what, <laughs> what the hell's going on here? And it feels like that. It just, because Dane DeHaan's character is like a, works for like a, a, a law firm or something like that. He's in New York, uh-huh. in modern day New York. And then he goes to somewhere in Europe and, uh, goes into this little time warp and it's just, and it's just that Gore Verbinski stuff where, you know, he's, he's, he really wants to create these beautiful still images that are disturbing, but, uh, incredibly beautiful at the same time. And there is some extremely disturbing stuff. The film's preoccupation with eels is exciting. You say that, but until eels, something like eels and snakes and stuff are, I think very cinematic animals. <laughs> they are. Yes. But the way in which they use them is so horrendously disturbing. Cause there's also some fun body horror stuff. So like, it's just, it sounds terrific. Visually, it, technically it is. And the story is fine enough. The, I think, I think he's invested in the story to the degree that it can allow him to do all the things he wants to do. And, you know, I can understand why people might not be super into it, but just as far as tone and mood and all of this other stuff, I'm, I was so happy that I watched it. Um, all right. Uh, I have one more, but I wanted to, I, I meant to mention this on the movie journal. We were talking about the good place, but I'm mentioning parts of the Caribbean. Um, can I spoil one good place joke? Season sure. two joke. You actually do get a glimpse of the bad place, just the train station. Okay. Cause you know, they take trains yeah. in the, and there's a billboard at the train station for pirates of the Caribbean six, the haunted crow's nest or whatever. Who cares now playing everywhere forever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. That's enough. Um, my final one is a movie that I, I almost thought about like bumping this up to the top 10 or honorable mentions, not because I think it's one of the best, but because I've been thinking about this movie so much since I saw it mm-hmm. uh, almost a year ago. This is another Netflix uh, movie, a documentary called Casting John Bonet. Oh, yeah. Did you ever watch it? No, it sounded... Uh, I feel like I need to be in a specific mood. Uh, you do, because it's... Uh, so the premise is it's a documentary... In theory, it's about this woman, Kitty Green, is making a documentary about the JonBenet Ramsey murder and is doing recreations, and she's casting people from the tower, from that area, um, to play people in the in the recreations. But really, the movie is you see some of the recreations, but really, the movie is just the interviews. It's not actually mm-hmm. really about the JonBenet Ramsey murder as much as it's about how we remember it and how when something as personal and tragic as this becomes a national story, how incredibly comfortable we seem to feel talking about it and speculating about it. Yeah. Um, and 
the movie itself could be accused of being in incredibly poor taste. And there are parts of the movie that openly welcome that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's kind of the point is that we're all in poor taste when we sit here talking about whether or not we think the dad did it as if he's a character on a TV show we've been watching, you know, like this is something really, really awful, but the kitty green is not moralizing either. I think she likes a lot of these people, Yeah, but she is way more and she's not, it doesn't seem particularly interested in hashing out the details of the, of the case itself. She wants to hear how other people Mm -hmm. think or how they make it about themselves. in a lot of ways, these people being from the area, you know, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, oh, I met Mr. Ramsey once, you know, that sort of, yeah, like, yeah. um, uh, oh God, this is another great, uh, good place joke. I just thought of, but I, I won't, uh, keep going on about it. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I completely lost my train of thought, but, um, she, like I said, she's not, I don't think she's judging people. Um, but I also don't think she approves I guess I'm I'm, yeah. I'm contradicting myself here, but she she at least wants us, I think, to to look at what we do, yeah, in in these cases, um, uh, and maybe some of the more out there stuff, um, is meant to jar us, to to make us think for a second about how yeah uh, callous uh, so much of this is. See, there's examples that I want to give, but I feel like it would be almost a spoiler. I mean, even though it's a documentary, I feel right. like it would be a spoiler to talk about some of the things. But there is, well, like one guy, um, one of the guys, I can't remember who he, I think he's try, auditioning to play the, the sheriff or whatever. And he's, um, his job, one of his jobs is that he's a, like a, he uh, is like a BDSM instructor. Like he teaches people how to have safe you know, That's uh, a very specific job. I didn't know it existed. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's a full-time job, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it is a job he has. And so he introduces himself as such. And then you see other people who are auditioning for the sheriff and they're talking about the case and talking about what the sheriff, you know, what time, you know, he got out of bed, he came to the, this time and it cuts back to this guy and he's like, so I mostly do like nipple torture. <laughs> and that's like a low grade example of, some I'm sure of, of some of the stuff that Kitty Green pulls. And I can see people hating the movie. I understand because the movie is again in very poor taste, but I think that's kind of the point. And it's only 80 minutes. <laughs> it's funny how often we, we come to that. Like yeah. based on that, like you absolutely should not see a cure for wellness, um, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, but, uh, all right. Well, there are some, some movies that fell through the cracks in some way, shape or form. However, we're interpreting it right now. Yeah. Let us know. We should do more like listener interaction. Sure. Right. Uh, certainly in the comments on the website, let us know, but also on, on Twitter. I don't know. Yeah. Hashtag through the cracks. There you go. There you go. Through the cracks 2017. Yeah. We're probably the only ones that have used that, right? Yeah. Or it's something horrific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's, uh, uh. <laughs> let's test that out first. Let's see yeah. what that might be. Um, but yeah. So yeah. So let us know. Um, so you can find us, uh, meanwhile, at battleshipretention.com. That's where you can leave all your comments, uh, and read of all, all of our reviews, including, uh, I think everything that I just talked about, I have a review of, yeah, all five of my movies I have a review of up on Um I reviewed Prevenge. There you go. 
Prevenge, uh, pardon me. So all of those are available at battleshipretention.com. You can email us, David at battleshipretention.com or Tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler at Tyler Pretension. Tyler's other, other uh, website and podcast is More Than One Lesson at morethanonelesson.com. And there's all sorts of... Uh, what do you call... Like, our team of podcasts is called The Fleet. Your guys' is... Faculty. The, oh, okay. I was going to say The Flock. <laughs> I guess that does, I can see where you're coming from, but like I already branded it with this chalkboard thing. Uh, so I no, like, that's definitely a better yeah, call. Yeah. <laughs> um, the flock is a too, a little too glib for what you're going for. I Probably. Think. Yes. Um, so that's, uh, that's all in those places. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.